Hi there, my name is John Paul Kermy. I am a breathwork teacher. I train people on how to teach breathwork as well. I'm really excited to be doing this new podcast with my good friend Feldy called Hangups, where we're going to help you change your life. We're going to show you how to transform your life with different tools. That's right. I'm John Feldman. I'm in a band called Goldfinger. John Paul taught me breathwork. It changed my life. I have struggled with anxiety and depression throughout my life, and I've gotten through it. This is a solution-based show. We're talking about solutions to problems today. Dude, you shaved. I did shave, yeah. It looks great. Thanks, I'm back to me. It just got to be too much. It, it felt, it was fun, but it was just, it was, uh, you know, I don't really, you know, I don't really grow facial hair, so I look like a very silly pirate, and that was funny for a while, but then eventually I just got sick of looking like stupid, so. <laughs> Dude, I know, especially after you started dreadlocking the beard down low, like. Well, it was starting to get long enough that there were like little squigglies that were becoming individual parts, and so that was not good. Juliet <laughs> thought it was great. She was like all about, at first she thought it was hilarious, and then she just got used to it, and was like, well, you should just keep going. I made the call to get rid of it. You look like a French supermodel, man. I thought it was amazing. Thank you, sir. That's always been my main goal, is to look like a French supermodel. At first, I thought you said Friends supermodel, which is a unique form of supermodel. Like Ross, like Ross Geller? If Ross Geller yeah. actually mixed with Eric from Foxy Shazam and did a little yeah. twist. That's me. That's, that's who I am the most. Uh, yeah. Anyway, hello. Hi. Uh, hi, John. How you doing? Andy? I'm John Paul. Yeah, nice to meet you, Andy. Uh, Andy Black. Andy Beersack is the lead singer of Black Veil Brides, also an amazing solo artist, also an amazing actor. I saw his, uh, his movie in the theaters, American Satan. It was incredible. I know you're on a TV show now as well. You, Andy does a, a plethora of, of things. He's an amazingly talented individual and someone I'd like to call one of my best friends on this planet, Andy Black. I love it. Thank you, John. That, what, a, what an introduction. I would like you to introduce me to every room I walk into with that whole preamble before I go anywhere. Uh, no, Hold thanks on. for having me. Hold yeah, on, I mean, everybody. We're, yeah. Welcome to the room. When I was a little kid, uh, and this is a little sidebar that doesn't matter at all, but when I was a little kid, I was obsessed with the idea of intros and introduction. And so I wrote out an intro that I would have my dad read aloud before I'd go into the kitchen or anywhere in the house. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome. And I gave myself a stage name when I was a little kid because I didn't think Andy was a very cool name. And uh, I remember hearing the name Rick Springfield and I thought that was cool. And I remember uh, liking Johnny Rotten. So my name was Little Johnny Rickfield. Uh, when I was a little kid, that was my stage name that I created. So I love a good introduction. That's, you know, I say all of this to say thank you for having me. Andy, do you think that that played into some of your success right now? That's what, because that's visualization, isn't it? Like you're, you're literally visualizing who you're going to be and who you've become now, right? Yeah, I mean, I think to a large degree as a kid, I grew up in, in kind of suburban Ohio. Um, there wasn't a lot of precedent for someone to become a rock star or anything like that except I didn't really I was an only child I didn't have a lot of friends uh were really any to speak of and I spent essentially all my time obsessing over primarily uh, adults who had succeeded 20 years before I was born whether that was punk bands that my dad had introduced me to or 
you know, movies from the past or whatever it was. I was so obsessed with this kind of world that kind of predated my childhood that to me it felt like, well, that's the world I belong in and I want to make that be part of who I am, whether it's being Batman or Johnny Rotten or whoever it was. Those were things that were so important to me and so intrinsic to who I was that as a kid, it never really occurred to me that there would be anything else that I would do or could do. And, and I would jokingly say to my mom, why does anyone do any other job? Like that's, you can do that. Like you can be a rock star. Why would anybody want to do anything else? Like that's, that's the thing to do. And so the purpose that I had was there. And John can attest, I've improved quite a bit over the years, but I was never, I never was one of those people that opened my mouth and sang beautifully as a kid. It just, I had a very unique voice, but it was, it was something that took a long time to kind of train to what it is now. But it was more about the, the act of, I know that I'm not the best singer. When I was a little kid, I was not, um, what you would call like conventionally attractive. I was overweight. I was made fun of a lot. A lot of it was about none of this matters because the end destination is where I'm going to go. And I didn't, I really didn't pay any credence to anybody saying anything otherwise. And that, that has been kind of the, the process of my whole life. And John listed a whole bunch of things that I did as a, in my life and my career. And I always make the joke that I'll, I'll do anything uh, that I can just to check it off the box. You know, even if I'm not that great at it, the opportunity to do something new, whether it's to act or whatever it is, um, it's, it's all in service of kind of this, the greater good of my life and growing whatever it is that people now refer to it as brand. But at the time as a kid, it was primarily about just growing kind of who I wanted to be and, and creating the cartoon version of me as a kid, as an adult. I mean, our show is about kind of wellness and health and mental health. And I mean, look for me when I'm, you know, I have a big life and I love my life. And you, you know my kids, you know my wife. I mean, I, I truly love being a husband. I love being a father. I love it. And uh, there's a lot of stress that comes along with like the mortgage and like, especially the business that you and I work in. Like who fucking knows? I don't know when my next project's gonna come a lot of the time. And so like these kind of things and making sure when we're making a record, we have moments so we can like disengage from writing, 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 you know, because I see, you know, you go outside and you just like, you're out there scribbling lyrics for hours yeah. and hours. We got to take a break from that in order to know what's good and what's not good to come back to sometimes finish these ideas. At least that's my experience. Yeah, certainly. The, the process that, you know, it's a unique process. The one that, you know, you and I specifically go into when making records, people that create art to make something that wasn't there before that process is, it's not for everyone. And, and those who are, are new to it sometimes can find it very arduous to get through to the other side where, you know, the advice I always give to, to people when they're starting off is to, to be afraid or to not be afraid to be okay with uh, writing shitty songs or doing terrible things. Because in the interim, you're always kind of growing and evolving and, and you have to kind of be willing to, to keep your nose down and get through those bad things. And I think that's probably applicable to 90% of your life. And I think that the process of making a record actually probably speaks to the larger portion of your life in that you're starting from something small that is more of an idea and you're creating what it's going to be. And I think most people kind of have that, regardless of what their career is, whatever their life path is, they start with the ideal or the concept of what it is they want to be or what they want to do. And then they have to see through to those steps to get there. In most cases, it's schooling or, or whatever else. In our case of making a record, it's keeping our heads down, writing a song every day, doing things that we don't necessarily want to do. There's been many songs that you and I have done together that we didn't like from the beginning to end, but we saw it through all the way through just to see if a moment could happen. And then there's other times where, you know, the probably the biggest song that you and I ever wrote together was the song In the End for with Black Hill Brides. That song was the second song that we wrote that day. We had started that day writing a different song. And by like six o'clock in the evening, we said, hey, let's 
let's just stop that one and start something new. And then we wound up writing a song that has been, you know, it's a gold record, a big deal song for, for years and years. That process is, is to me speaks to the larger thing of being right able now, to- By the way, right, right next to the, um, yeah. the, gold, the gold record is right next to my most cherished and valuable uh, asset of the house, my coffee machine. Coffee machine, there it is. Right that's not a coffee machine. NBA that's like a futuristic, like uh, Star Trek melee coffee machine. And it's in the wall. I watched it getting uh, put in there when it was when it was new. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I don't mean to get too too high concept with the idea of writing a song, but I do think that there are parallels between the idea of putting together a record or creating anything uh, from nothing and kind of the way that life can be, particularly now because education is so different for young people. There's so many different avenues that you can take to get a, a life or a career. Um, you know, it, it can be sometimes a much more, like I said, an arduous process. You know, you and I have had hours and hours of, of deep conversation about the meaning of life and careers and, and money and just everything. I mean, God and everything under the sun, we just, we've talked about. And I think that part of, part of the process of, of, of creating music is life experience and like you who started you know in a van warp tour back in the day in front of you know probably one person you're playing your first just, show. sometimes just the other bands who were playing that day if anybody <laughs> that's yeah. right i remember um yeah i mean for me it was like and, and and that was my education and so we talk about like my my kids like julian is probably going to go into coding video games mila's going to go into some sort of social networking um i mean there's so many ways that you can make money i mean she's got 120,000 tiktok followers at 11 years old but you know i know she's gonna find a path in something she loves but i was like you know like you you know i knew like my heroes were all you know on stage it was the who the sex pistols it was queen and I'm like, I, that was what I was gonna do. And my education was spent in a van opening for seven seconds, you know, doing all those tours when I was a kid, just like yourself. And it's like, yeah. when we make a record, you and I talk about social distortion a lot being one of the bands that we really connect on and how do we create from that life experience. For me, you know, uh, I, I dropped out of high school. I was not seen as a good student. I was told through my entire adolescence that I was, you know, I, I mean, for lack of a better term, that I was a dumb kid. Um, and that was something that it, I never really agreed with it. So it didn't matter to me. But the, the concept that I, I just couldn't pick up uh, the general educational system and the way that they were showing me things didn't make sense to me. I felt like the, I, I've said a lot of times, to me, I didn't understand the applicable use of learning uh, for a week about the Magna Carta. I didn't think it was necessary to my adolescence. And it wasn't something that would be I couldn't put it into use as an adult, so I just didn't really care. Uh, as I got further and further away from caring and was going to school less and less and just staying at home and dealing with truancy officers and everything else, and eventually the reality was I wanted to go on tour, I wanted to go on the road, I wanted to be in a band, I wanted to be an entertainer, and I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just drop out as soon as I'm old enough to, and then I'll go on tour, and that's what I did. And I have spent my adult life kind of reverse educating myself, trying to find the things that I missed and fill in the gaps, and you know, fortunately, uh, I have a brilliant wife who's a, a genius and knows math and other things that have, she's been able to help me and things that I, I genuinely am, am not quite very, I'm not very good at. I, I, don't, I don't have basic understanding of things that I probably should have learned, but I was so much, so uh, pigheaded in the ideas and, and, the, and the concepts that I was going to get to one direction. I was going to get to be in one direction. Uh, I was going to get to uh, be in the direction I wanted to go into. 
that all the other concepts uh, didn't really make a lot of sense to me. And so as I've, as I've gotten older, I guess I, I have a bit of understanding that, you know, like you said, uh, the education that we had, and, and again, you know, Juliet, my wife's the same thing. She toured in vans, gr was a grinder, did all that stuff, worked her ass off. Same for myself. We were playing in front of no one or less than no one sometimes, just an empty bar with, you know, the bar owner waiting in the corner for the thing to be over. Uh, you know, and you do show swaps and all these crazy ass things that are super dangerous for teenagers to be doing, but you learn kind of your adult skill set that way. And uh, I think that now it would be so interesting to be a young kid now because your opportunities to kind of chase different avenues is so much more grand. Like you said, your, your children are able to to see to do things like TikTok and video game coding and all these things that didn't exist. Even, you know, I'm, I'm 29. When I was a kid, none of that was in existence. So it's been such a huge jump in the last 10 to 15 years in terms of what people can do. It's, it's pretty crazy. Everyone is living on the internet. All these young kids are doing all this stuff on the internet all day long. You know, my generation was the first that had, as teenagers, we had social media, MySpace, you know, LiveJournal, stuff like that. We had no realization at that age that those things would still be around. Kids that are 10 years old today find things that I wrote when I was 14 about the girl that I was wanted to date in high school on my, you know, MySpace, and they'll they tag me in them on Instagram because those things are eternal. Those things exist on the internet forever, and we had no idea because it was the first generation that was dealing with that. So I think that that is just going to become commonplace where kids now just accept the fact that once you put something on the internet, it's there forever, and it'll just continue that way. So I think we're just going to get used to this being the way things are, and I think that socialization and stuff will just become more about. You, I mean, the great thing is this. You, you talk about specific bands that you like, Feldy, when you were a kid. And I don't know about you, but the experience of finding a lot of people who like that specific thing could sometimes be difficult. But if you're a kid now who lives in a remote rural area and you happen to love one band from a really obscure German, uh, you know, one record from an obscure German punk band in the 60s or whatever the fuck, you can be a fan of that and find 10 other people in the world who also like it and talk to them all day about it because there's enough people talking about all this shit in the world. So there is a huge upside to the fact that socialization has become less about fitting in and more about finding your, your people. I think that's so great that you said that because I, I sometimes struggle with um, online stuff where I feel like, oh, it's not a real connection. It's not a genuine connection. But you just made a point there that, was, that struck me so deeply. It's like, you know, I felt alone with a lot of my feelings growing up as a kid and I felt nobody else had these feelings. I'm stuck. Nobody knows how I feel. But now I could find some other people in the, on this planet Earth through the internet that know how yeah. I feel right? And connect yeah. to those people and not Absolutely. feel alone. So I think that's an amazing point. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to say something that I don't think I've ever said before to anyone in the world. That's right. Uh, when I was, this is, this is very young. This is dial up internet takes half an hour to get online, that level of like internet. There were chat rooms for like seven things. You know what I mean? Like there weren't enough to, to have all the different topics. And one of the chat rooms that worked really well, it was like a whatever, was my dad is a huge fan of like English soccer. I've never been a huge fan. My dad has always loved it, but he had access to like a website that was like a Manchester United fan website. But this chat room existed and I was so isolated as a kid and I had so few people that would talk to me and had shared interests that I would go on to this chat room and feign interest in this thing that I didn't really care about just because I knew if I wrote about this stuff, then somebody would talk to me and I could have friends that I could talk to and this went on for maybe like 
six or seven months. And then I finally stumbled across a Misfits one. And it was like, oh, now I can actually talk about stuff I really like. But for a short period, I pretended to be a dedicated fan of this soccer team in England that I had never been or seen because it was an opportunity to talk to people. So growing up that way, I think sometimes people miss the huge positives that exist by allowing kids particularly to be able to really specify their interests and hone in on things they like and to talk to other people about them. I have this technique called breathwork that I use to release all the shame from the stuff okay. that I've up through my, through my whole life. And I don't know if Feldy's ever had you do the breathing in the studio with him where you yeah. lay down and breathe, right? So I'm the guy that teaches that. That's my thing. Okay, awesome. That's I mean, you know, there's, that's, and that's, I've always told Feldy, and this is just true of me my whole life, I'm someone who has a lot of anxiety and I've always kind of dealt with it in that, um, as I got older, I, when I was very young, I had a lot of anxiety. And then I discovered when I was about 19 that if you got really drunk, you wouldn't have to think about all that stuff. And so I drank heavily from 19 to 25 or whatever. And then I stopped drinking. And then all the anxiety, as soon as I stopped drinking, came back uh, in a way that was unprecedented. So like from the year I quit drinking to the following year was the worst year of my life emotionally. Even though I had quit drinking and was getting healthy, all of the stuff that I was trying not to think about, whether that was embarrassing things I had done or fears that I had or all that other stuff, came at me in such a, a just a, a rush of emotion that dealing with that was very difficult. And I shaved my fucking head and tried to like disappear. And like, it was a very weird time in my life um, because I had quit drinking and I was happy about that. But now I could think and feel all these things that I had been pushing away for so many years. So things like that have always been helpful. When I was a kid, um, that was something that was really important to me was I had difficulty dealing with other people. And I was, I was told as a little kid, you know, take deep breaths. And for whatever reason, that's stuck with me my whole life is that I've always been, if I'm really stressed out or whatever, I've always tried to, to use breathing as an opportunity to try to get more centered or kind of level. You're yeah, still we, not drinking, yeah? No, no. And I, I don't believe I ever, well, the weird thing about that was that as a kid, all my heroes didn't drink, right? And I always thought that I would be somebody who didn't drink. My parents didn't really drink growing up. My dad would drink beer, but I was never around drinkers. And I didn't drink for the first like year that it, in Blackmail as we were touring. And then it just got to the point where I was poor and exhausted and everyone was fucked up. And it just felt like, well, maybe there's something to this. And then when I started drinking, I realized, hey, I don't feel so anxious. And so it became kind of this big spiral. And then by the end of it, I literally, I had a lot of physical ailments. Uh, you know, I, I, you know I, I broke nearly every bone on the left side of my body, jumping off stage. Never did physical therapy, never did anything to help. It just went on tour and kept drinking through it. So by 2014, 2015, I was in excruciating physical pain, drinking to try to compensate for that. Then I'm getting given pain medications and I'm drinking with the pain medications and I was just kind of losing my mind. There's a whole year of my life that I really have very few memories of. It just kind of blacked out for like the whole year. And that's terrifying. And that, so that it, once that kind of hit that point where I was, you know, I can remember being on a European tour and just, I had never felt worse about myself and I just knew it was time to, to stop that. And so, you know, it was a process. I quit and then I would have a drink or I, you know, and, and I went through that process and now it's been, uh, geez, it's been since 2016, just about to the month. Good for you. One of the things that we wanted to do with this podcast to make it kind of special and unique is just basically help people, right? Because, yeah. you know, there are people who love you, your fans, whatever, and they, and they admire you. And, and to know that you struggled with that and then you overcame that or you struggled with anxiety and you overcame that is amazing and, and could really help somebody. So if you were going to give your younger self who was struggling with anxiety or depression or anything like that, a tool that you now use that you now have, what would that tool be? Do you have any tools like that that you can point to that really help you? Yeah, I mean, I think, and it's actually something that 
maybe Feldy can relate to as well, work, finding creative work to do, finding things that expand your, your mind and make you feel like you're doing something creative endeavors or interesting things or things. It doesn't have to be the job that you do. If, if I'm feeling really anxious, painting a wall in my house can be just as therapeutic for me because it's something that wasn't there before and now I'm making it the way that it is. And I have personally found from the time I was a little kid and then I kind of lost it, that finding a creative endeavor and finding a way to lose myself in something, whether that's writing, painting, acting, drawing, whatever it is, has been a it's been a huge help to me and for a while i didn't do it. it when i was drinking heavily and just dealing with that we would go on tour and i would do the bare minimum at the show then i'd get drunk all night and then i'd feel terrible and shameful the next day then i'd start drinking in the middle of the day then do the bare minimum at the show then we'd get off tour and i would not get up until three in the afternoon and do absolutely nothing and not not clean not decorate not do anything that was terrible and so the, honestly the first thing i started doing that I, it was almost instinctual, but I just started doing it. When I quit drinking, the first thing I did was I started becoming like the guy who cleans the house all day. That was the first thing I did. I don't know why I gravitated towards that, but I started going, well, I, this is something I can control and something I can do. And I'm feeling really anxious right now, but I can make that dirty thing over there clean. And then I've done that. And it's not in a, an OCD way of like, this has to be done this way. It's more about, I want to make something better than it was before instead of just sitting in my own sadness. And if that thing can be improved, then I should do that. And that's a way, a healthy way of taking all these feelings that I have of anxiety and putting them towards something. And so it went from that to, then it became more about my creative endeavors. I have a million things going on at any time because I want them to be there so that I don't feel like I'm gonna slip back into apathy. And it's not about chasing those feelings away with work. It's about finding things that take the, the really high strung nature that I have and the, the feeling that I'm, I need to do something or something's wrong and applying that to a positive thing, taking the OCD tendencies and all those things that I had as a kid and applying them to making me good at what I do, making sure that the things that, that I fear are applicable for the things I love. We did a record together called the shadow side, Feldy and I, because that's something I was very interested in with the shadow side, the idea that you have this darker version of yourself that you carry around with you. And I wanted to make my shadow side myself. I wanted to take the shadow side and make it less about this fearful thing that's my dark elements and apply it to making me into the, the best version of myself I can be, whether that's the dark sides or the light sides, combining everything that is me and making something special out of it. And I, the advice I would give to myself or anyone at that age is there are things that you can do to rise out of the darkness that you feel on, on the inside. There are things you can do that don't require you uh, to feel defeated you can, you can admit that maybe something's wrong, but there's things that you can do that are actionable that you can take and go, I'm gonna make something better than it was before. And maybe when you're done with that, you'll feel a little bit better and maybe you'll wanna do something else. So that's always been a huge help for me and, and I hope that it is to other people as well. I love that. I love that you talked about the shadow side because I, we all have a shadow side and I had a shadow side and I have a shadow side, but I tried to fight it. Like I tried to deny it. Like, I don't want to look at that part of me. I don't want to own that part. I don't want people to know about it. I want to hide it. Yeah. Right. And that is a problem in itself that creates conflict inside of me. And so finding the best way to express that and to, to tune into that for me, it's, you know, I do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, so I get to go and do this martial art and talking about it and letting people know and finding the right people that I can trust to talk about this shadow side and, and, and own it. Like owning it is that, and that makes you a whole self. And I love yeah, that you definitely. brought that up. It's amazing. Feli, what about your shadow side, buddy? 
You and I, Andy, have so much in common. When I was 17, I stopped drinking like on my own. I, I started at 12 and I did the same, the same stuff, anxiety, depression. I mean, I, could, I, I wouldn't have been able to tell you at the time that that was what was going on. But in hindsight, right. I can, you know, I can tell you that's what was going on when I was a kid, you know, anxiety, depression, and just not fitting in and all that shit. And so I started drinking and doing drugs and I stopped on my own because I'm like, fuck this, man. I just kept on making really terrible decisions. Got a girl pregnant. I got kicked. I, I was kicked out of high school, like very, very similar story to you. But, yeah. but what I found in that time that I wasn't drinking is all those feelings came back up. Like you just talked about. And so yeah. it was like, now I wasn't treating it with drugs and alcohol. It was just like, I was just dealing with anxiety, remorse, you know, frustration, all that stuff was coming up. And eventually I, I drank again because I couldn't, I couldn't handle the feelings. And so right. I had to, like John Paul asked you, like I had to find like a toolbox to be able to deal with that stuff. And I deal with it with work. Like you totally um, just talk, you know, I, I feel the same way you do. So you so eloquently described and, and exercising is so key for me. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I had so much anxiety when I, when I, when I stopped drinking, like, like I could, I would be checking my pulse. Like I'm going to have a heart attack. I'm going to have a heart attack. Or I'd be yeah. like living one second ahead of myself. Like, ooh, ooh, like that feeling of not being in my own body, that out of body right. experience from a, like a panic attack, an inevitable panic attack. And I had to find a box of tools or I was going to fucking die. You know, for me, it's exercise. I know you're a runner, you know, yeah. right? You're still running? On and off. You know, I do every morning. During this, I, I kind of admittedly had the, like, should I go run every morning? Like, I don't know. And so I started doing it, and then I, I, I kind of stopped for a little bit because we started doing more, like, weight training stuff at the house, me and Julia, because we've got, a, I mean, I've got the full gym set up in here, so why not use it? Uh, but I'll probably get back to it. Generally speaking, yes, I, I run every morning and have since I got sober. That was the first thing I started doing was that was my thing every morning get up run a couple miles and then come home and, and kind of start my day so yeah caffeine for me too man I, I was just thinking about that one day that you and i remember we went to air one and we got those bulletproof smoothies see i can't do it that's the other thing is that you are capable of drinking a bunch of caffeine and not freaking out caffeine for me i don't drink coffee anymore at all by the way because uh and it's been about a year and a half since that because i realized every morning and i don't know how i didn't put this together I would drink a bunch of coffee and then I'd go to the bathroom and then I'd have an emotional breakdown for about a half an hour and then I'd start my day. And I just thought, I guess I just started to feel like, well, I guess I'm the person who has a freak out every morning for no reason. And then I realized, oh wait, the caffeine is really kicking into my system and making me freak out and all my anxieties are going crazy. And you witnessed it when we did those bulletproof coffees where I had like a, like an existential crisis. Like <laughs> I was like sitting outside, like staring at the trees, couldn't like speak crazy so i stopped drinking coffee for that reason it turns out it worked and then the other day i was like oh it's been about a year since i've had a coffee i'll be fine and i had one of those cold brew groundwork cold brew things yeah, yeah and yeah. i again and again immediately had an emotional like crisis just, like laying on my back i was like okay so it is the coffee that's doing this to me so yeah i don't do i don't do caffeine at all anymore 
I did a three day fast at the start of this whole COVID thing, because when you fast for 72 hours, just a water fast, all your bad white blood cells die off and it regenerates new ones. So they have, there's studies that show that three days of just a water fast will give you an entirely, like almost a new immune system. And they do yeah. this with cancer patients. And so I said, I'm doing that. And like the first day with the coffee headache, I was like, oh, I gotta have some green tea. I can't hang with this. And it was so brutal and I just, oh my God, but I was determined. And fasting is like a whole other thing. Like I never understood the connection between spirituality and fasting like what are they what is like why do religions fast until i did a fast and then i did this you know the breathing thing that i do this breath work session and i felt connected to some universe god higher power whatever yeah. you want to call it i felt it like i felt it as real as like i want to punch my neighbor for leaving the garbage cans in front of my driveway or whatever like it was yeah. that unbelievable and so you i you know i also realized how addicted i am to caffeine and sugar i mean it's like it's a thing. It's a, it's a definite thing for me where I, I love my coffee. And you know, I guess that's the thing for me is how do I, you know, like, like one of our mentors, Milton Dykus would always say, he would say, you know, life is short. Don't take yourself so serious and lighten the fuck up. Right. And so how do I give myself a break? Because if it's all about breath work, fasting, working out, meditation all day, every day. And then, and then I work for 12 hours and go to sleep and wake up and do it again because I'm in, like, I have to be able to have something that can just be a little bit of a break, whether it's like watching something on Netflix or having a, you know, a donut once in a while for me, finding that balance and balance yeah. is hard because I'm a fucking, like I'm addictaholic. I get addicted to stuff and then I just go all the way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I can, I think, Part of the reason why many things have come easily to me when it comes to either quitting something or starting something is that addictive personality. I was good at quitting drinking because I was addicted to quitting drinking. I was good at quitting cigarettes because I became addicted to quitting cigarettes. Those are things that I, I obsess over things just as much as I obsess over the liner notes in a Black Belt record or the story on something or a comic book I'm working on or whatever it is. I obsess over things so much that they're also applicable in a positive way. So I can definitely relate to the idea that there are things that are just, whether they're good or bad, there are inherent addictions built into maybe the framework of, of who we are as people or whatever else. Is that, like a, is that like a nod you were talking about older bands that you were into? Like Pink Floyd used to do an album that was like a whole storyline all the way through the album, right? right. And it, like the wall, like the end of one side is it, isn't this where? And then when you turn it over, he goes, we came in and like, yeah in the silent spot, in the dead, in the dead air, you know, you'd only, I only know that because I used to take a lot of acid and listen yeah. to the wall and hear all these little things, these little nuances in the wall that you may not get if you're not obsessed with it and taking acid. I don't sure. Know. Yeah. Uh, I, I definitely, I never, I never did psychedelics uh, in any way. Uh, however, I, I definitely have always been obsessed with minutia and little details of things. Um, and for me, I like the idea of having a through line and, and we've now done a number of concept records. John and I have done a couple together. The last record that we did together was, uh, a, I did a graphic novel around it. It was a, called the ghost of Ohio. It was this fictitious story of my adolescence as a ghost basically. And I liked, I found that for me, the art comes, comes more quickly to me when it's built in a story. When we first started, I was writing songs about that girl fucked me over. It never spoke to who I felt like I was as a person. And so once I really started to discover kind of the more uh, 
the idea of building concepts in, then it became easier and easier to kind of feel like, oh, I can actually express myself more directly by doing things like that. So the, the record that John has just referenced is a record called Russian Divine that we did in the summer of uh, 2012 or 2011, somewhere around there. Um, that was the first time that I was able to go, here's the entire story. And now we're going to work backwards and build a record to this story. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. We wrote songs that were very on the nose of the story and didn't really work. And then we wrote songs that were more ethereal and kind of generally the consensus idea of what the story was. And that was a really fun thing. And so we've done that a lot subsequently. So yeah, I mean, I think it, it more speaks to, as a person, I have such an interest in the small details and building out from there and making sure that all the little fine, finer little things or details within the context of something are, are planned. This really fucked me over in a way because I was so young, but we had a producer on the record that we worked on before uh, Feldy that I used to drink all the time every day, as I said, but I, I did a take where I was particularly drunk and the producer came in and he was kind of one that wasn't there every day. And he came in and said, um, what's, what, what's different about that take? And I said, oh, and somebody, somebody said, oh, you know, he's really drunk. He goes, good. Well, you sound much better. So you should get that fucked up every time. And oh. I was like, that's all I need. That's the only pass I need, you know? And so, uh, it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't said in like an aggressive, like, Oh fuck you kind of way. It was said in like a joking way, but as a 19 year old or 20 year old at the time, I was down. I think I was 19 and I was like, fuck yeah. All right, cool. Let's do it. I would every day I would get, you know, the boxed wine, like Franzia or whatever, the white wine. I would, I would take two bags. I would take the bags out in the boxes and I'd throw them over my shoulder, like bagpipes. And I would drink two bags while we were working up to, to singing and then I'd start drinking liquor when I started singing. So I'd start the day by drinking two boxes of wine to begin the day. And so it was like, at that point, th that was something that was just kind of built into the idea of, oh, you sing better when you're drunk. So then it became, well, of course I have to get fucked up for the shows because I sing better when I'm drunk. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in that way. So yes, I say all that to say, yes, uh, that was, I'm sure, a wonderful night. I enjoyed it as much as I could. However, later on, I was able to enjoy it more when I was actually present. I think there's a lot of people out there telling themselves that story that I sing better, I write better, I paint better, I'm a better actor when I have a couple drinks in me or when I take a couple yeah. pills or whatever. And all that is is just a story that people tell themselves because they're self-conscious, because they're not confident enough to, to, to trust in their abilities. And they can't tap into that, they, or they feel like they can't tap into that thing. But the truth of the matter is that I've found, and I've, you know, I've worked with a lot of different people, like your creativity, your source, your art, whatever you pull that from is so much deeper, so much stronger when you're sober. If you can, oh, get, a doubt. You can get past your self-consciousness, right? Like that's the key. If you really want to be a great artist, whatever that art is, it doesn't matter. You have to be able to work through that, your, your fears, your self-consciousness yeah. to tap into that, or you're never going to be great. You know, you can't. Yeah. But you also, you're also you're it's a you're an unreliable narrator to yourself yeah. at that point because you're telling yourself you're doing great but if i go back and watch videos i sounded like ass like every one of those shows but in my head i was like this is the best anyone's ever done but of course i didn't sound good and it's also doing yourself a disservice in a in live this is the thing that is crazy to me about drinking and live performance for us we're running around a large stage and to handicap yourself by drinking excessively before you do that so that you're burping and you feel sluggish and your mind's all it's it's a, it's a terrible idea and once i started doing it the other way the shows got so much easier i mean i used to think that playing a rock show was like the most difficult thing you could ever do in the world because it felt that way because i was walking around with a giant boulder on my back that i had put there so once i took that off 
the idea of going on stage and performing the show is so slow i can it's easy i do the songs i can see what's happening I, it's not it's not everything's not an emergency and i think in some ways that benefits a younger audience because the sense of emergency is there more when you're drunk but from a, the perspective of doing a better job and having a better show and people paying money to come watch you play drinking before a show is is not the right way to go if you're if you're interested at all in doing a good job on stage well and and like like you were saying earlier like let me take in this moment like i don't know when i'm ever in my life going to be playing in front of seven thousand people to my song something i wrote something i created and looking out and these people singing it back to me or whatever and like let me take in this moment in my life because yeah. this is something really special and i've never you know i've done this before but this is a this is a moment that I, you know, I'm going to, you're going to lay in your deathbed and remember that moment. Like those are the yeah. moments I do this thing in my breathing thing where I pull these moments in your heart. Right. And those are the moments that you pull in your heart. You know, it's not, it's not all the money that gets stacked up in the bank account. It's not the cars. It's not the house. It's none of that stuff. It's the moments that you have with friends, like the laughter, the love, those special moments on stage, whatever. Those are the moments that you put in your heart and that matter certainly. and that go with you. Really. Yeah, certainly. I think that's one of the things that it's one of the, you know, we talk about regrets, right? We talk about like the things that, that over the years become more difficult to, to stomach that you may have done or something like that. Uh, it, I would say that certainly, I'm just going to hold it. <laughs> I would say that certainly one of those things for me has always been uh, that I missed out on so much. You know, there were so many cool things that happened to me in my early twenties that I was not present for in the way that I should have been. And so I really, in some ways, I missed out on an opportunity to, to see so much of the world in a different way. You know, by the time I was 25, I had been to every major country in the world, played for millions of people over the world. And I was, I was really only there for about 40% of it. That's a disservice that I did to myself. And so it's been the, the kind of joy of the last, you know, five or six years has been the reality that I've gotten to go back to a lot of those places. And I've been fortunate enough that people still stuck around and liked our band enough for me to be able to go back to these places and see this kind of stuff and to do it in a way where now I get to enjoy these things. And I think that that maybe speaks to a larger thing in terms of people's understanding of the, the joy that they can have for themselves is you're taking yourself away from moments that you're going to regret later. The regrets you have from the shitty things you do when you're drinking that make you drink again, I think pale in comparison to the ultimate regret you'll have later, that is you weren't present for the best years of your life because they don't come back in that way. Yeah. I, I love that. And part of forgiving ourselves for the shit that we did, you know, I drank a lot in Mexico. I was living in San Diego when I was kind of bottoming out in my drinking days. And it's like, I did, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you can do in Mexico that uh, you couldn't <laughs> do in America. And it's like, I, there's shit that I, 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 you know, really regret. And also stuff that was just really fun as well. And, and it's not like it was all bad, of course. There were great times, just like you. I'm sure you had really fun times. Oh, but certainly, at some, certainly. At some point, you go, the, the bad times outweigh the good times and the physical, you know, what happens physically isn't worth, is just not worth it any longer, you know? Yeah. So how do we forgive ourselves? Because no matter what, all this stuff, I mean, the best I'll ever be is human, ever. Yeah, I think I think that that's that's a big part is that there is a certain amount of just a constant like you mentioned earlier, uh, John. You mentioned the the shadow self being something that is difficult to to kind of live with, and I think that that is a pretty constant thing for people that you have all these moments that you regret, and you have all these kind of things that you hate yourself for, and then you're trying to combat that. And I think that when you forget to remember, or you you don't remember that 
ultimately you're going to experience more things moving forward that maybe you don't love about yourself. Like there's going to be new things. You're going to say something stupid or do something tomorrow that ultimately will lead to a further feeling of regret. So to deal with every single moment in your life as if you're the worst person in the world to yourself is doing a disservice to your biggest fan, which is you. There's no one in the world who's going to love you more than yourself. I mean, there are other people who may care a great deal about you. They're, they're, obviously, your parents will love you implicitly. Your, your spouse will love you. But at the end of the day, you're you. And that's my personal belief. I believe that you have to be your biggest fan because no one else is going to do that for you. And so whether it comes to young people who have regrets about social situations or people who struggle with self-harm or things like that, I have always tried to advocate for the idea that, and I have to live it because I preach it, but it's difficult for me too, to not truly hate myself for things that I had done in the past or things that I'm going to do in the future. Once we get off this call, I could very easily do something incredibly stupid that I'll regret for days. It's the attempt to not do that and the continued attempt to, to be a better person every day. Listen, I love so much that you said that. One of the things I focus on in my classes that I, when I teach is like, listen, you're going to make mistakes. Everyone on this call, everyone listening to this is you're going to make a ton of more mistakes. That's going to happen, but you don't have to beat yourself up about it. That's the, that's the switch. Once you can go like, okay, I made another mistake. Am I going to beat myself up? Cause I made it. I said something stupid. I did something stupid. Like forgiveness releases me from the past. So it's not for them, right? It's for you. Like you got to forgive other people who screwed you over so you can release yourself from the past, but also you got to forgive yourself because if I'm going to keep beating myself up over and over and over, I'm never going to, I'm never going to have a good relationship right? I'm not going to have a good relationship with a partner. I'm not going to have a good relationship with my kids. I'm not going to have a good relationship with my family because my ability to love other people is in direct proportion with my ability to love myself. So if I'm hating myself all the time, I'm hating everyone around me. If I'm hard on myself all the time, I'm hard on everyone else around me. It's like I had to stop being so hard on myself so I could stop being so hard on my wife and expecting so much because I expect so much out of myself. And then in turn, I expect the same out of her. And like, yeah. nobody can live up to those expectations. It's exhausting. So right. I had to start going easier on myself and loving myself and stop beating myself up so that I could have a better relationship. And it, it changed everything. It literally shifted everything. Once I go, you know what, I'm going to be more loving, more compassionate to myself today. And then that just translated over into my kids, into my wife, into my family, into everything. And recognizing that I'm doing the best I can right now. I know I'm doing the best I can, right? So if right. I'm doing the best I can, then that means that this person over here is probably doing the best they can too. Even though to me, it seems like they're doing really shitty. Like right. they're doing a terrible job. Like really, that's the best you can do. That, that's the best you can do. <laughs> they are. They're doing the best they can. And if I can just assume or try to assume that everybody's doing the best they can in every moment, then maybe I can have a more compassionate relationship with them and with myself. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, Andy, I love you, man. I really appreciate you coming on this call, dude. This was, this was fucking great. Wouldn't Amazing. You say? This was fucking great. Thanks, guys. Thank you. And, you know, Feldy, you said all that nice stuff about me. It's worth noting. I mean, I think I've said it a lot. John is one of my biggest inspirations in, in my life. And I'm, I'm so lucky that I got to meet him at such a young age. And we've had such a good friendship over the years. And every couple of years or so, we're, we're in his house working on a record, sometimes two at once, whatever it is. And uh, it's, it's one of the great joys of my life and it's a huge inspiration to me. And thank you so much. And John Paul, thank you for having me on the show. I've, I've done your breathing exercises with Valley. I'm sure I'm, I'll do them again. Uh, yeah. and yeah, so I, I really appreciate it. And the opportunity to talk about this stuff is important to me because particularly young people will see 
the musicians that they look up to or whatever it is and they and they don't necessarily understand that the journey that so much of us have been on is, is so similar to theirs and something that is you know just as important to be able to touch on w with younger people especially to be able to say hey you know these are things that are composite of my experience as well and here's how i deal with them so i appreciate the opportunity guys yeah we loved having you thank you so much for you're coming the best andy it's awesome best. Thanks, guys. Bye, guys. thank See you, you. Andy.